Time for Gene Shepard, humorist, after-dinner speaker, and recipient of the Mark Twain Award for 1976. Here's Gene. lesson on how to repair super hats from the National Radio Institute. I used to send for free lessons, you know. So I have one lesson in almost anything you care to name. Yes, uh, even I, I took a lesson once in uh, automobile repairs. And the first lesson that came free was a brake alignment. And, uh, yeah, well, you, you know how you, you line up the brakes. You, know, you realize, of course, that brakes tend to pull unevenly. And uh, so that's the only thing I can really fix on a car now. I know about that. And uh, I'm very good at... Uh... Oh, oh, yes, the first lesson, by the way, uh, of uh, of the taxidermy school, it outlined how you catch a squirrel. At that point, then, it got a little rough. Because, well, no, no, taxidermy is an art that is not for the squeamish. And uh, I rapidly discovered that uh, I wasn't squeamish, but my mother was. So, you know, I think many of us are, are uh, definitely formed in our education by people that we had the misfortune to grow up with. Oh, yes, uh, many, uh, many a person, like uh, this friend of mine, uh, he had a secret desire all the time from the time he was about two to be an airline pilot. But he grew up with a mother and a father who were not only afraid of flying, they were even afraid of walking. In fact, uh, they were the kind of people who should have been sealed in a cocoon and they kept there, you know, with a suitable uh, food and stuff piped in. And uh, so he just never got to be an airline pilot. They wouldn't even let him get near airplanes. And so today he sits in the corner of his office and broods a lot and he builds model airplanes. So, uh, you know, I just wonder how many people have been forever doomed to orthodontistry. <laughs> when they secretly wanted to run a bulldozer. <laughs> I could see the film. What? What? A bulldozer? That's ridiculous. And the next thing you know, he's spending the rest of his life putting wires in people's teeth, which is not uh, uh, essentially uh, exciting work. And I might add, I can't see what, what difference there is driving a bulldozer and putting wire in people's teeth. I mean, uh, but you know, I suppose one is a calling and the other is a, you know, you get into that. But... Uh, I've been fascinated, uh, to, you know, just to talk to friends of mine. I have to walk up to them and I say, hey, uh, you catch them. You can really catch them off guard sometimes when they're hanging over the water cooler and they're, you know, looking mad. And uh, real quick, you come up to him and say, hey, what would you rather be? See, he, he'll have to blurt it out. You know, a pickpocket. They, oh, no way. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, you could, you could get the, because almost everybody isn't what he wanted to be. This is a sad fact of life. But the actual sad fact of life, too, is that most of the things people want to be is either stupid or totally unavailable. So, you know, you can't, you can't bring them together. It's just the way it goes. 
you know the old uh, the old problem of many are called, damn few are chosen. I mean, you could want to be a left-handed pitcher all you want, but if you can't develop a slider, forget it. I mean, it's not it's not always a matter of being what you want to be. You know, you just can't. Uh, you uh, if you were born with the what the, the the correct the right cheekbones, you could have been Gregory Peck. But since you were born uh, looking a little bit like a fire plug with feet, there's just no way to go. So uh, you know, sometimes uh, there are conditions which are not. Uh, not right. Now, uh, I, I uh, at, at, at the age of about nine, people, yeah, I've gotten letters from people saying, Shepard, what did you want to be when you were a kid? Did you want to be what you are, you know, in showbiz, dancing and singing and running around and wearing a funny hat and, and uh, all that jazz? Well, I never thought about it. I think, uh, I think people who get to be uh, various exotic things, like being in showbiz and running around dancing and singing, Rarely think about that as a kid. I hate to tell you, friends, that almost every major actor I knew had no idea he was going to be an actor, even as late as his early 20s. <laughs> That's discouraging, isn't it? <laughs> Perhaps to be true. Uh, in fact, I, I, I've even known some, some major novelists that never at any point did it cross their mind that they wanted to be a writer. You see, they were drawn to writing inevitably by writing. They were not drawn to the idea of being a writer. Not the same thing at all, see. So, uh, you know, as a kid, I remember they, they used to send us, uh, once in a while we get these mimeograph forms, what do you want to be when you grow up? Uh, I remember several uh, term papers like, uh, write about what you want to be. I remember writing one. I actually remember what I wrote that I wanted to be. And I'll tell you, it was in seventh grade. I had a very interesting seventh grade teacher, Mr. Melton. Mr. Melton was different from any other teacher I ever had. I'll tell you an example of what Mr. Melton did. He taught geography, among other things. That was his main thing. He taught geography, okay? So Mr. Melton, I was listening the other day to one of these uh, very serious, often very pompous FM stations that uh, feature rebroadcasts from... uh, Things like Radio Thailand, and uh, they're always rebroadcasting uh, speeches by Nobel Prize winners at dinners being given at places like Manchester, England. And, uh, and this guy was talking away there, and it was, you know, he was talking about about a subject which I remember Mr. Melton talking about. You know, I suspect there was a time, and it wasn't that long ago, when schools really taught stuff. And no, I, I, I'm always surprised at, 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 at you know, I, something that I know very well that I learned in school. That I didn't know that other people didn't learn this and still haven't. And, and what was he talking about? Well, he was talking about a famous European philosopher. Famous only to those who know his name. He was, well, uh, he had a theory. And I remember the day that Mr. Melton told us about it. And here I am sitting in, in seventh grade, and Mr. Melton, who played the flute, uh, yes, he did. He played the flute, and he was a good... He was, in fact, he was had been a member of the Chicago Symphony. He was good. But uh, flutists, or flautists, if you prefer that, do not earn a great deal of money, apparently. And so he was teaching school now. However, he used to occasionally entertain the PTA by playing his flute. 
and he did not like to do this, but he was constantly being drafted by the PTA to play things like uh, the Flight of the Bumblebee, which he hated unbelievably. But uh, that's the you know the taste of the PTA runs to the Flight of the Bumblebee, Lawrence Welk, and that sort of jazz. So uh, it, what he really wanted to do, you know, he wanted to play the uh, the flute part from uh, Mozart's uh, flute, the cello, and Via da Gamba quintet. But uh, they didn't buy that at the PTA. So he always had to play that. And he also played uh, the Flight of the Bumblebee, and the principal would get up there and time him to see if he could make it under a minute. And if he made it under a minute, they really went ape. So uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, that was the general level of, uh, of uh, Indiana culture at the period. So uh, one day, though, however, I, I, I later, and I'm, the more I sit around here, the more I realize that we were getting a fantastic education at the Warren G. Harding School. An example. Mr. Melton one day got up and he, he says, geography, right? You study geography in seventh grade. And uh, most people know not a damn thing about geography. And uh, they think geography really is to uh, study uh, maps. Well, Mr. Melton was different. And uh, he's up there at the board and he is telling us about this philosopher. Now, most people in seventh grade tend to think a philosopher is a... Uh, is, uh, you know, somebody like uh, the editor of MAD. Uh, or, <laughs> you know, a philosopher is... Oh, uh, <laughs> uh, well, you know. I, I, one of the sad things I saw the other day, you know, when you, when you talk about the state of our education, did you see this Miss... Uh, was it Miss USA or Miss Teenage or one of those things? See, they're, they're all up there seeing there's this guy that does daytime quiz shows, and he's interviewing the final five girls, see... And he asks each one, who is the most, uh, uh, well, the most influential woman in the world as far as they're concerned, right? And so, you know, it's very predictable. Uh, the first one says, well, I believe that Madame Curie was, you know, she probably didn't know what the hell Madame Curie did, but uh, she learned that thing. But the, <laughs> the second one from the end, who was, a, you know, a great-looking blonde, she says, well, the most famous and I think the most influential woman and the one I admire the most is Anita Bryant. And I, I said, Anita Bryant? Well, boy, that was a foul tip that took somebody's ear off in the stands, you know. <laughs> and I, I thought, Anita Bryant? You know, that was the most famous man, the greatest man in the world today is Elvis Presley. So uh, I, I, I figured, well, that's, you know, that's typical pop culture. But when I think of Mr. Melton... I boggle, because here I am, I'm listening to this lecture that this guy is giving on this uh, elegant FM station, and I, and I said to myself, I'll bet not one out of 75 people listening to this know what this guy wrote, this philosopher that he keeps discussing, always under the impression that obviously all of his listeners knew who he was. How many of you are familiar with the works of Malthus? You are? You better be careful. <laughs> In fact, the works of Malthus are coming back to haunt us today. Uh, Malthus, uh, and you hear how I got this in seventh grade, you see, and he's up there and he gave us a whole week on the Malthusian theory and the Malthusian propositions. And, you know, I just assume that everybody else studies that kind of stuff, saying I'm writing all this stuff down. And I remember writing this this paper about Malthus. 
Now, you must understand that that was not easy to teach in a place where, uh, for miles around uh, the town, uh, nothing but cornfields and cantaloupes grew in great profusion. And, uh, you know, to come up and tell you that one day there's going to be unbelievable starvation. So he's telling us all about this. And I remember going home, see, and I'm sitting at the kitchen table, and uh, and it's supper time, and the old man is sitting there reading the sport page, and the meatloaf is out on the table. And uh, my father, you know, he always used to say things like, uh, how'd it go in school today? Now, you undoubtedly got that many times in your life, see. How's it going in school today? Well, usually a kid either says, eh, okay. Or he says, eh. Or he says, eh, not so good. Or he just sits there and glowers. You have that choice, see. Well, now, from time to time, I used to actually answer him. Like, uh, he'd say, how'd it go in school today? And he says, oh, pretty good. Uh, we, we, were, we were studying... Uh, the works of Malthus. The old man put his paper down. He says, you're studying what? Well, uh, the Malthusian theory. It's the Malthusian theory? It's yes, the uh, Malthusian propositions. What the hell? He says, what are they teaching you there at school? That's the Malthusian theory. And he looks up my... My mother's standing over by the sink, you know, and she's got her Brillo pad. And she turns around. She says, well, tell them what it is. See, she didn't know either. So uh, I said, well, uh, the Malthusian theory is the following number of propositions. And uh, he said, oh, don't give me that stuff. Just tell me what it's about. Oh, don't, don't cloud it up with them words. You're not, you're not fooling me. Now, come on, tell me what it is. I want to find out what they're teaching you there at that damn school. I says, well, uh, uh, Malthus, as you know, father was a uh, well-known uh, Middle European philosopher. There you go. Don't give me that stuff. Just tell me what it is about. I don't care. So, all right. So he's a Slovak or something. Tell me what, 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 it, what's it about? What's this Malthusian stuff? I said, well, uh, the Malthusian theorem holds actually that. Uh, Population is a geometric progression, which is to say that if you start out with two people, within a short time you're going to wind up with eight people. This is stupid. Everybody knows that. The old man yells. Isn't that what you're learning in school? I could have told you that. Look at us. We started out just me and your old lady. Now look. Whole damn mess here. I said, no, no, it's a little more complicated than that. See, it says that the, that the population is a geometric progression and uh, there's a formula. It's a square of uh, the hypotenuse over the shortest line between two points divided by three. And uh, you figure out at the end of a century, where you started out with one person, you're going to have like uh, the whole town of Hessville, Indiana. And uh, so, all right, so what's new? I says, well, see, he also said, though, that since the, the population expands geometrically, the ground does not expand, it, but remains the same as it always was. It, it doesn't get bigger. Oh, come on, that's stupid. I could have told you that. This lot here we got gets smaller every year, in fact. It don't get bigger. I mean, the junk out in the back by the garage, I can't even go back there anymore. It used to be the garage went all the way back to the backyard. Now I can't even get back there. So you're trying to tell me that they're teaching you at school that people have kids and ground don't go bigger? 
I says, yes, Dad. <laughs> but more than that, see, he said also that since the ground doesn't get bigger, food does not grow more. They won't have any more food. See, one day there's going to be too many people and not enough food. Oh, come on. Come on. By the way, my father worked for Borden's. See, and they had this machine that made more food than you ever wanted to eat. So you trying to tell me we're going to run out down at Borden's? I says, well, that's what he says, actually. <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, boy. Am I glad I went to school when they taught you how to do something? The old man said, and he went back to the sport page. Okay, so, you know, the old man, he... he and, and, and now... now I, I'm listening to this lecture, see, and he's talking about Malthus and the Malthusian theory, and he's comparing philosophers, see. And uh, now this is something that just does not happen on the Johnny Carson show. The, uh, he's comparing the philosophers of pessimism versus the philosophers of boundless optimism. And he says, why, just a few years ago. Now, who is a philosopher of boundless optimism? In other words, who feels that it's going to get better and better in every way <laughs> as time goes on. Well, among others, Buckminster Fuller. See, he's the kind of guy that just simply believes that if we create more machines, the machines will create better stuff until ultimately the world is going to be one fantastic paradise. The machines are going to make it possible. Okay, that's boundless optimism. And that was in the saddle just a couple of years ago. Now it's beginning to be questioned. <laughs> and now Malthus is slowly beginning to creep out of the woodwork. And, uh, and if you don't think he's creeping out of the woodwork, have you noticed the food prices recently? That's part of Malthus. Okay. Now, uh, yes, it is. Now, uh, furthermore, uh, the, speaking of uh, philosophers of that type, who was the philosopher who, uh, and again, this was not Mr. Melton this time. We had a, a, a history teacher. Now, this history teacher, whose name was Mrs. Benjamin, assigned us to read alternate chapters of this guy's work. And, I, and I've discovered now, as I, as, I, you know, as I walk around life, that most people not only have not heard of his work, they don't know what he said. Now, who was it? He, de he described the decline of the West. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Believe me, he's, uh, to use a current phrase, he's revelant. Uh, he described the decline of the West. Yes, his name was Oswald, but that's not enough. <laughs> that's right, Oswald Spengler, but I'll bet you never read it. Well, we, you did, and you. Oh, it's hard to remember his name. Yeah, but uh, what we did was was we would read all in the chapters, <laughs> and and of course that confused the hell of us because uh, out of all of us because we always assumed the West was referring to the West Side of Chicago, and uh, <laughs> when he was talking about, and we can understand the decline of the West because that's where the Chicago White Sox Park was, and they were sure as hell in decline. And uh, and so you know you, when you're reading about the decline of the West and you're you're in eighth grade, that's heady stuff. Especially when I realize today most people are taking courses in life experience one, you know, and uh, you know how to walk. I suspect there will be something called the how to sit down. Uh, oh yes, there's a lot to sitting down right. Oh yes, a man can be judged 
Almost immediately when he walks into an office, about how he squinches down into the chair. If he flops down with his feet all over the place, forget it. Think he's going to get hired by Mr. Bullard? No way. So learning how to sit will be uh, taught in schools, I suspect, with diagram slides, with uh, audiovisual lecture aids, and, uh, you know, sitting, standing through the ages. There will be lectures on <laughs> the evolution of the chair. And, uh, yeah, you can, make a, you can make a very involved course out of any damn thing you can. Like, uh, you're, all right, like, for example, nose blowing, one and two. It starts out with a uh, very involved description of the origin of the handkerchief in Western culture. You can see the chorus already, can't you? Well, beginning, uh, nose blowing in the 18th century, or why there are three buttons on every man's coat. Uh, and until eventually, of course, then there'll be lab courses in nose blowing with disposable Kleenex type napkins, or nose blowing with linen handkerchiefs. Two different techniques. And eventually, after three semesters, the kid will be, of course, uh, given the, a final standing oral laboratory lesson and blowing his nose, and he will receive five credit hours. Now, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, I can see this. Uh, shoe tying, one and two. Oh, yes, that's a very... Uh, these are all... Uh, uh, of course, it'll all be given with visual aids, so the kid won't have to read. You know, reading gets in the way of uh, true communication. So it'll all be done with visual aids, slide rules, pantomimes, little little playlets on how Ben Gazzara ties his shoe, all these various things. Now, uh, <laughs> okay, so I'm, I'm uh, you know, so when, when we got out of school, I remember, I remember the uh, talk about the, uh, being influenced by your, you know, your family on where you're going to go to school. See, everybody is going to go to some kind of a school. Half the kids, you know, that got out, they said, oh, hell, I'm going to get a job, I want to get a car. <laughs> you know, the hell with going to this college. You know, there's always those guys. Why not? I put nothing down on them. No way. Uh, although there are those who do. I do not. I say that if everybody went and got a Ph.D., the world would be in a hell of a lot of trouble shortly thereafter. You better believe it. First of all, Roto-Rooter would have a lot of trouble getting guys to work for him, for starters. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know... So, well, you know, that's just part of the thing. So, uh, nevertheless, I'm, I'm, I remember one day hanging around the garage, seeing, and uh, me and Flick and Schwartz and everybody's talking about what we're going to do. You see, we're going to go to school. At that point, I had rejected the idea of taking a correspondence course in taxidermy, which I had uh, entertained briefly in my sophomore year in high school, be a taxidermist, you know, and stuff goats and stuff. Uh, but although the kids think of these things, see, it's a. Uh, uh, I I will say that the more you live in the city, the more your life goes in conventional molds. You think of being a doctor, you think of being a lawyer, you think of being an architect. You you know these are conventional molds. But uh, the further out you get out there, you're liable to say, well, I'm going to be a. Uh, uh, now, let's see, I'd like to be a guy that goes out and paves driveways. That would never occur to a kid living in Brooklyn. <laughs> and yet, uh, that's a highly skilled trade. Uh, so, so I suspect that the, the city kids tend to think in terms of conventional molds. I will be an actor. Uh, you know, this is a conventional, goes all the way back to the first caveman that ran around with a clown suit on. 
so, but uh, it takes it takes a lot of imagination to say, uh, I will be the best damned cockroach exterminator in Sewanee County, the cockroach king of the state of Omaha. You know, <laughs> now that takes guts. So, and imagination. So we're sitting around uh, back in the garage one day and and discussing who's going to go where, and. Um, and uh, Flick entertained, had entertained briefly the idea of going to Ball State. So I'm going to go to Ball State. Well, Ball State is a, is a it's a school out in the Midwest. You don't know about this, see? But they never heard of Princeton either. So it's uh, six and one half dozen the other. It's a very good school, by the way. He said, "I'm going to go to Ball State." And uh, Schwartz says, "Why?" He says, "Well, I want to be a teacher." <laughs> This brought gales of obscene laughter. Flick being a teacher was incredibly grotesque. I mean, it's like Woody Allen wants to be a third baseman for the Dodgers. There's no way. First of all, Flick was averaging a D minus in courses like gym. I mean, yeah, and it went downhill from there. See, but he wanted to be a teacher. See, uh, there's you know there's an old there's an old canard among uh, educators that people are always drawn to the one thing that they can't do. People with speech impediments are invariably drawn to try to be radio announcers. This is a, this is a common thing. You'd be amazed uh, around the uh, radio stations, the number of people who come in for auditions who have unbelievable lisps and bad problems with their speech. Uh, there are also problems uh, like, uh, well, so you're drawn to the thing that you can't be. Opposites attract. Guys with bad eyes want to be astronauts. You know, guys with thick, short, stumpy fingers and uh, watery eyesight tend to want to be brain surgeons. Guys that have unbelievably bad psychological problems, they sit in the corner and twitch for hours on end, they wind up being psychiatrists. Oh, yes. I'm, I'm sorry, friend. <laughs> the reality is a terrible thing to accept. So uh, here's Flick. He wants to be a teacher. Of all things, a teacher. Well, you know, we worked that over to Coles for a while. Finally, uh, the truth came out. Somebody was really going to be something. Schwartz says, did you hear about Glenn Atkinson? And I said, no, I did not hear about Glenn. An obscure member of our class. You never heard me discuss Glenn. An obscure member of the class. One of those quiet guys that sit in the back and don't say a damn thing for eight, nine, ten years running. And the Schwartz says, you hear about Atkinson? I said, no, what about him? West Point. Wow. Yes, that's right. Wow. <laughs> because let me tell you this. When you're sitting around back of the garage, something like Annapolis or West Point is about, it's 50 times more remote than Yale. I mean, it is, that's really something. And I, and I said, Glenn is going to Annapolis? Or rather, West Point? And Schwartz says, yeah. I said, oh, come on, is he kidding? He says, no, he got an appointment. I said, an appointment? What do you mean an appointment? Yeah, from the senator. He got appointed by the senator of the state to go to West Point. 
half of us couldn't even get in to see Frank Scott Simonson to talk about a job at the, <laughs> at the Shell station. And he got an appointment from the senator. And Flicks is, he got, Glenn Atkinson got an appointment from the senator to go to West Point? You know, Van Johnson was always going to West Point. Or Robert Cummings was, Robert, yeah, he's all, all these guys are going to West Point. They never had once had a movie about going to Ball State and learning how to teach geography. Or getting a job down at Simonson's Garage. Atkinson's going to West Point. I just sort of hung like a pall over the backyard. And then you know how life is. You kind of walk along, you forget it. One day, I'm coming out of the drugstore with Schwartz. And walking towards us, out of the dusk, was a guy wearing a long, gray, elegant cape. And this fantastic hat with a great big gold eagle on it. My God, it's Glenn Atkinson. Atkinson had mysteriously gotten taller. He was about seven feet tall. And Schwartz said, hi, Glenn. Oh, I believe, uh, yes, you're Schwartz, of course. I remember you. Schwartz said, gee. How do you like West Point? And Atkinson merely said, uh, oh, uh, I find it satisfactory. And he had gold stripes already on him. Three years later, I find myself in the Army. One day I'm riding along in this Jeep on the way to some obscene detail where I was going to clean chickens with another guy. And who do I see going along the road in the opposite direction but Atkinson in a staff command car being driven by two highly uniformed corporals with a flag out in front of his car with a great big silver eagle on it. The colonel! Our colonel! The colonel that ran the whole damn camp! It was Glenn! Oh, God! I scrunched down in the seat when he went by. He looked tall, elegant. He wearing silver eagles. He had on a hat that glowed in the dark. gas and went down and cleaned chickens. Halfway through the 300th chicken, I says, hey, you know, the colonel went to school with me. The gasser started to laugh. He says, God, there's nothing you can do about talent, is there? I says, no, I guess not. Give me that gizzard over there. You've been listening to Gene Shepard, humorist, author, and recipient of the Mark Twain Award for 1976.